Hi, Bruno Jr. here. Our podcast, Busting Addiction and Smiths, is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com. SafeHouse believes that traditional treatments fall short of the needs of clients who face the modern problems of addiction. Modern problems need modern solutions. Multiple addictions, multiple relapses, multiple triggers, and cheaper and more powerful street drugs set up unprecedented challenges facing treatment centers. What is needed is a more sophisticated approach, a better way forward. There are three reasons to choose our progressive modern treatment program. One, a more sophisticated intake process. Two, technology proven to enhance recovery. And three, the most robust aftercare program in our sector. To learn more, visit us at safehouserehab.com. Hi, this is uh, Bruno J, and welcome to yet another edition of Busting Addiction and Smiths. Today, I'm pleased to have Rebecca, who has been in recovery for approximately two years, but I'll let her tell her story. And then my good friend Adam, who's come along to perhaps answer, uh, ask a question or two. So let's start with Rebecca. Uh, welcome aboard, Rebecca. And why don't you start with just some parts of your early life. We're going to structure this the way that AA tends to structure the stories, which is what it was like, what happened, and what is life like today. So why don't you start there, and then you can enter into what was the period in your life when you first started you know, using alcohol and drugs? Hello, everyone. My name's um, Rebecca, and I'm an alcoholic addict. So I'll just start with growing up, my dad was an alcoholic. He used to binge drink on the weekends, and unfortunately he died of this disease when I was 14. He committed suicide. So that's just to put a bit of a picture to the way I grew up initially. I started um, drinking when I was 16. We had these things back in Australia called UDLs. They were cans of drink and I liked the ones that had vodka and orange because they tasted like Fanta. And I know if I drank three, I'd get drunk. And if I drank four, I would pass out. So I used to drink three and it's what I like to drink. And all my friends would drink them as well. And I blacked out to from the beginning when I started drinking and I really thought everyone blacked out so they were a lot of fun and that initiated my drinking. Were these with with, uh, kids from school? Kids from school yeah all my girlfriends from school. And girls? Girls yeah girls yeah. So girls who like to drink? Girls who like to drink yeah. All right good start. (laughs) That was us. All right. I went on I did really well at school and I uh, wanted to get into law but I missed out by one mark because my uncle was a QC so I went and studied economics and finance at uni and when I got to uni there was a lot of drinking I managed to still do well at uni even though I drank quite a bit my drinking like scaled back up when I was 18 I got a brand new car for my 18th birthday but unfortunately I used to drink drive because my drinking got a lot worse lot more hectic. So it sounds like your family had the resources to be able to buy you a car. Yeah, they did. That's good. Yeah. And what were your family's uh, circumstances, if I may ask? Well, I got an inheritance when I was 18. You know, my father passed away, as I said, when I was younger. Okay. And my mum, by this stage, had remarried. I had a, a younger brother and sister. And yeah, as I said, I got a brand new car. But yeah, so we had a good family life at home. He, she remarried. And he was a nice man, which was great. But I drank, drove, and I actually rode off my car. I blew 0.17, and I rode off another car as well. I went to court, but because my family was quite privileged, my uncle was you know, well-known in the legal industry, I didn't lose my license, and I just got off with a fine. So I probably should have got more consequences because I kept on drinking. 
Also discovered drugs at that stu- at that stage at uni. How old were you when you discovered drugs? Probably about 19, okay. 20. Started right. going to rave parties, okay. taking ease, things like that. So the drinking kind of faded away a little more. And yeah, I loved dancing and going to dance parties. Did really well at uni and went across and started to become a stockbroker. Yeah, which was great. Got a really good job straight out of uni. And you were like 21 or 22? 20, uh, 22. 22, okay. Yeah. A bachelor's degree in economics. economics and finance. Oh, yeah. Yep. So that was great. But then the drinking came into play because on a Friday night after the market closed, we had drinks in the boardroom. You know, the trolley was rolled out and it was expected that you, you know, drink with the boys. So the drinking came back. Part and of the culture, right? Pardon? Was it part of the culture? It certainly was, yeah. Okay. And it was very much a boys' club. There wasn't many female young brokers at that, that, you know, back then. I was very good, though. I wouldn't drink during the week because I was very good at my job and I was a functioning type of alcoholic, similar to my father. I would only binge on the weekend. He was very much a high achiever as well. And in my family, you had to do well to get admiration. And, you know, it was all about what... Expectations. High expectations, very much so. And plus, I pushed my... pressure to... Push myself, yeah. yeah. Okay. Ever since I was a little girl, I Were had Were you those. also abusing drugs at this point in time? Or As I said, I'd only use them on the weekends, okay. and I would only drink on the weekends okay. or on Friday night onwards. Would you be looking forward to the weekends? I would kill for the weekends. Yeah, right. A lot of pressure to be a stockbroker, to write the business. We would get ranked every month, ranked from 1 to 100. There was about maybe 90 dealers on the stockbroking floor, and you get ranked on how, many, how, how much business you write. And I wanted to be in the top 10, you know, it was really important. So by the time Friday would come along, I would really look forward to Friday and Saturday night. That's a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. For a young person, especially. It is. A young female. Yeah, definitely young female, you know, yeah, it was. But I thrived on it. When you're young and in your mid-20s, you feel like you're bulletproof. Yeah. When I was 25, 26, Merrill Lynch, who was I was the first female employed by Merrill Lynch when they came to Australia, and they sent me to, um, to year they sent me to New York to work on Wall Street, mm, okay. which was a very prestigious honour. But unfortunately, when you work on Wall Street, cocaine is very readily available. Yeah. And the boys over there on Wall Street, they use cocaine throughout the day. So when you write a lot of business and you pull off a big trade, they're like, get in there and go and have a bump, a bump of cocaine right. in the toilet in the daytime. I'm like, nah, I'm not Did doing that. Did you participate in that? I didn't want to to begin with, but there's a lot of peer group pressure to do that, yeah, to be one okay. of the boys and part yeah. of the club. So I would go in and I would do it. And it was right against my work ethic. I have a very strong work ethic. But, you know, in the end, I just followed suit and I went and did it. And I found myself, you know, using drugs sometimes 24-7 because in, uh, in New York, nothing stops. You know, you go round and around and around. I was probably in New York at about the same time oh, really? working okay. in the ad agency business, so I kind of get that idea. We have the same, exactly, same, party same central. Yeah. Yeah. So my drug use escalated, it really did. And to be honest, drinking kind of fell away because drinking gives you hangovers and um, it's very messy, whereas cocaine, you go up, you come down, and uh, so drugs took over. So I was there for about two years. I had a fiancé waiting at home for me. He was very straight and, you know, I didn't want to come back to Australia because okay. I knew what was waiting for me and I was having too much of a good time. Okay. I did come back to Australia, though, after a couple of years. I called the engagement off. I wasn't ready to settle down with a white picket fence and have babies. That was the least. 
Mm -hmm. you know, that I wanted to do. And was that an expectation you felt placed upon from you? From my parents, uh, okay. from my mother. She, okay. You know, we had a big engagement party. They'd booked, paid a fortune, you know, for me to get married at the Windsor, the whole thing. Um, so I called that off. I came back. I went back to working broking. And it was okay. I managed to put my drugs and my drinking back on to just the weekend. I was very good at being a functioning addict, alcoholic, and playing different roles. My parents had expectations. My, my employer had expectations and my friends did and I would just put on different, you know, fronts for everybody. Mm -hmm. Put a lot of pressure for mm -hmm. me. So the squirrel cage was really running pretty fast at that point. It really, really was. And it got to the weekend and I would just like go, oh. So there was no, none of that use or abuse during the week still? Nothing, okay. nothing. I always managed to get up, um, go to work the next day and do that and just use on the weekends. Okay. Things kept going okay till I was in my 30s and it wasn't until I was about 34, 35 that my GP said to me, I'm not sure what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, you can't keep this up. I had a family GP. This was your doctor? My family doctor, okay. yeah. And he could tell things weren't great with me. And I went to him and I said, I'm having trouble sleeping because when you're a stockbroker, you have to trade the U.S. market. You trade the Australian market from 10 to 4. Then you have a lot of trades on in the U.S. market, and that's midnight our time. Mm -hmm. And I'd trade that market from 12 to 2, and then I couldn't, I couldn't get to sleep. And I'd be, I went to him and started asking for sleeping tablets. He said to me, you know, there's something wrong with you. It's not going well. I'm concerned about you. He gave me some sleeping tablets, and I, these sleeping tablets were meant to be the new non-addictive sleeping tablets. But after a while, I started to get addicted to them. Mm. And or what they were? Yeah, they're called Still Knox or Ambien in the States. Okay. And I started to abuse them, and I kept asking for more and more. Then I started doctor shopping, and yeah, I got up to a very high level of these sleeping tablets, and I started to drink with them as well. And, yeah. and yeah, by the time I was in my late 30s, I had to start going to rehabs to, to try and get myself yeah. off these things. So, yeah, I, found, I ended my first 28-day rehab in my late 30s. Where was that? That was in Melbourne, Australia. Okay. I would go and do them for 28 days, clean myself up, get physically fit. And what, what was that, that turning point, if you will, that got you into rehab? What was the... Some we, light must have gone on or some, some, somebody must have said something or you, you came to some conclusion at that point. My family doctor sitting me down and saying, Rachel, I'm scared. Okay. You might die. Would you have, that's pretty strong stuff. Would you consider that a form of family intervention at that point? Yeah. Okay. Because I, right. I, he's the one person I told the truth about everything. Okay. And this was to whom? Your family or? No, my family GP said this oh, to okay, me. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So the GP essentially sort of intervened and, and your family then supported yep. you going into rehab. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't work. They only lasted, you know, I would do a whole lot of them. Take, I'd take 28 a month off work, my, you know, my holiday leave, go and do them. I tried health farms. I tried every, everything I could think of. But okay. they, weren't, they weren't holding me, you know. So typically we talk about, you know, don't quit trying to quit kind of thing. Exactly. And um, many stories of somebody coming out of rehab and walking down the street into the bar. How, yeah. how long was it between the time you left the rehab and then you went back out and started using again? Sometimes it would only be four or five days. Okay, all right. Yeah. So it was pretty quick. Yeah. What was going through your head during that period between treatment and the first, you know, hit or 
break? It was all about performing at work. So I had was to it? keep going. Okay. Yeah, like okay. I would go back, I'd be at work, I'd have to trade that night. I wouldn't be able to get to sleep. And I'm just, I could do it, hold on for about a week. I'd be so tired. I'm just right. like, I need to keep the expectations from my family, from my employer. Sure. Yep. If I, I was been engaged three times, it's hard to manage personal relationships while you're sure. still, you know. And how much of this, Rebecca, was it about appearances? A lot. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? So I've always had high expectations placed on me and then in turn I put them on myself. Okay. It's all about looking good, earning lots of money, having the European car, having a big engagement ring, living in the right apartment. So the culture essentially and the family and the culture kind exactly. of set I, you up. I grew this. up in a very you know privileged house. We, we, we lived in the right suburb. We had lots of money. But inside it was you know all falling apart basically. And would you consider the family situation in and of itself a dysfunctional family situation Very, in terms the, of the relationships and stuff? Yeah, we, there was domestic violence. My father suffered from manic depression, okay. hence why he suicided. Okay. So, so on the outside it looked good, but it was it was difficult on the inside. Difficult, And yes. how much of that environment do you think affected your thinking uh, outside of the expectations? Quite a lot. Okay, and in what way? I think I got all the, the wrong messages of how to cope with life. Okay, that's a great answer. So my coping mechanisms were just keep going and keep going. Put on some red lipstick and a dress, mum used to say to me, and you'll be okay. Okay. You know, get your hair blow dried. Everything will be all right. So was there some fundamental uh, dishonesty going on there in the in the home? There was, yeah. We just had to smile and pretend like... We, my parents would have phenomenal dinner parties. People would come, beautiful food would be served, they'd be dancing, and then pe the people would leave. And, you know, the domestic violence would be horrendous. Okay. And, like, we'd all sit on the stairs, the three of us, and pray that the people wouldn't leave. Okay. Do, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, of course Conflicting I Conflicting messages. Yeah, that's really hard. That's really hard. And, you know, I mean, you're at this point, you're a teenager, you're a young kid. That must have really been difficult for it you. It was, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, back to... You're at this point, you're keeping yeah, up appearances, you're working these odd hours because of the time difference between the markets in Australia. Yeah. And you went into rehab and you came back out. So yeah. if you could continue. Okay. So yeah, I'm doing a few detoxes here and there. Um, I did another rehab. And in one of these rehabs, I met a lovely man named Michael and he was 20 years sober. I met him at, a, they'd take us to AA meetings and he was 20 years sober and we started a relationship. We decided to get married. Okay. He was really great. He was really grounding for me, kind of took me under his wing. And we decided to get married, and I withdrew to get married. And I was seven weeks, we were seven weeks off getting married. You know, the invitations had gone out, my dress had been made, my bridesmaids' dresses had been made, the whole bit, the big reception. But I, I relapsed again. I was in detox. Okay. And I was going to do a 10-day detox and we'd be fine. You know, we are going around. I'd taken off work and we will do a six-month, you know, honeymoon, the whole bit. How long had you been sober before you relapsed at that point? Uh, probably about seven months or okay, so. Okay, so that's a good start. I had a decent time up, yeah. yeah. Sure. You know, kind of decent. And I went to a H&I. Which in is what? Hospitals and institutions meeting. So what okay. happens is two okay, people from NA come in and do a chat. I didn't really want to go, but that, the nurses made me. And I'm sitting there, and I knew the guy that came in. He was from 
NA, I think it was, and he told us about his, a story and he said, I'm nine years clean and sober. And he said, I'm only, that how I got to be clean and sober, he said, I used to rob ladies on the street, mm. old ladies. I used to grab their bags and run mm. off. He said, I had no life. Mm-hmm. But what I did is I went to this place up in Byron Bay for nine months. I did some therapy where I did yoga, some art therapy. I talked about myself and I worked on myself for nine months and it completely changed my life. Were you going to AA meetings at that point? I was, yes. Okay. And he said, and, and that's, that's my story. And now I am an auctioneer. I own part of the company. I'm a director. I have a wife. And he was sitting there in a suit and I just looked at him. And, and he goes, and that's my story. And he goes, you two could all change your lives if you maybe did, did what I did. So afterwards I left and he came up to me, he goes, how are you going? And I said, oh, I'm okay. His name was Carl and he goes, what have you got planned after this? I said, oh, I'm getting married actually in seven weeks. And he goes, really? I said, yeah. And he goes, you don't look very well. And I said, oh, I'm just detoxing. And he goes, well, would you consider a long-term rehab like I did? And I said, I don't have time. I'm getting married in seven, <laughs> seven weeks. Oh, he goes, if you put all your rehabs back to back, you would have already done a, long re- a long-term rehab. I said, seriously, I don't have time. I'm getting married in seven weeks. I've got so much to do. He goes, here's the number of the rehab. Why don't you have a think about it and see how you go? So I went back to my room at the hospital and I rang my fiance and I said, this is what happened, this guy Carl said. And he goes, you have a think about it for an hour and I'll have a think about it for an hour. So I rang him. Uh, so I rang him back in an hour and we both said, I said, I've got to go. And he goes, yeah, you've got to go. I'll, your mother and I will work out the wedding. We'll cancel it. We'll, we'll fix up your apartment in South Yarra. You got to go. Okay. So the next so morning, so you had done a quick detox at that point. I'd done my first day of my detox. Okay. I was just got in. So okay. I rang the place. They said well, it's a five month wait. Then I told her. I started crying. Said I'm putting off my wedding. I'm going to change my whole life. I've got to come. So by hook or by crook, anyway, within three weeks, I had a bed up there, and I went up and did a nine months rehab. Okay. It it completely changed my whole life. So a nine month rehab. What does that look like? It's a public rehab, something I'd never done before. When I got there, I, I couldn't believe, you know. But anyway, it looks like six different houses where nine people live in each house. Okay. You share rooms, no air conditioning, just fans. Up in Byron Bay, though, which is a beautiful place in, in Australia. But, um, yeah, a girl was my buddy and showed me around, and she had a tennis outfit on. I said, is there tennis? I'll... um. I didn't bring my racket. Can I hire one? She looked at me and mum made me take my ring off because ring off, my ring was a very, very expensive ring. Right. My mum said, they'll cut your finger off for that ring. So you leave your ring in a deposit box. And so she took me down and showed me and, and the, the girl, Rebecca, her name was Rebecca too, said, she wants to know where the tennis courts are. And the guy said, make sure you show her the underground pool and the squash courts and where the massages are. And they all started laughing and I said, there's no tennis court. There's no nothing. They said, we went to an op shop and did an op shop run yesterday. And Rebecca just likes dressing up in outfits. <laughs> so they were making so fun public, of me. Public uh, facility, but residential full time. You're there all the time. All right? the time. Okay. Yeah, all the time. And there's no chefs. There's no nothing. But I need to tell you, I soon realized I wasn't there for the amenities. I was there to get well. Okay. And it's the biggest gift I ever gave myself, ever, ever. Okay. I left that rehab. And, and your I, family paid for this, right? No, it's free in Australia. Oh, it's public. It's okay, free. Well, God bless The them. government pays for yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's That's, like Canada. <laughs> the government pays for it. Right, so my taxes paid for it. We're going to turn on the air conditioning um, now. Yeah.
Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at SafeHouseRehab.com.